I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 as we conclude our study this morning from Philippians. I'll be reading Philippians 4, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable, pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon his preached word again this week. Father, as we turn to your holy scriptures as part of our worship, we ask that you would show us more of the good news of Jesus Christ, that you would affect our hearts, that you would open our minds, open our imagination, open our wills to the reality that we are citizens of heaven and our lives here on earth are different and better because of Christ. Oh, Father, we pray that you will do this now in Christ's name. Amen. Several years ago, the officers of our church were invited to go through an overnight experience called the Journey of Generosity. Maybe you've heard of this. It's not a Bible study per se, but was a gathering where stories were told throughout the weekend of various lifestyle decisions that have impacted people because of their desire to be more generous in their way of life. We listened to testimonies of those who intentionally had chosen to live with a mindset of generosity in every single area of their life. And as a result, how God had uniquely blessed their lives as a result of this generosity. We heard accounts from those who had helped neighbors with various needs, those who had provided money for adoption expenses for families looking to adopt. Uh, we heard stories of those who supported missionaries and raising funds. And the goal, of course, of all this was to convince our hearts and our minds that a lifestyle of generosity is good and it matches God's desire for us, that God really does give unique fulfillment to his people as we give, as generosity becomes the norm of our life in every single part of our life. I suspect that we have all heard it is better to give than to receive. Of course, we have. Even though every child on this earth attempts to disprove that fact on Christmas morning, those words actually did come from Jesus himself, which I think, as we conclude our study of Philippians this morning, begs this question. Do we this morning actually believe it's better to give than to receive? 
Do we truly in our heart believe that a lifestyle of generosity is far more enjoyable than any other way of living? Do we actually believe as one made in the image of God, who is the author of all grace and the one who always gives, that giving is better than having? Do we believe that? In our world where we are surrounded by consumption in all forms at all times, where comparison of our way of life and our lifestyles is not only accepted, it is encouraged. How do we feel this morning about generosity? How do we think of generosity with our time, with our homes, with our lives, with our calendars? And yes, wait for it, with our money. Money and preachers, the forbidden topic. We're actually going to talk about giving this morning. Uh, but I promise this will come from the scripture. It's just not my thoughts on this. I promise. Okay, as we conclude our study of Philippians this morning, and I hope this has been a helpful study to you all. It certainly has been in my heart. We've seen these past few months of God's commitment for his people to experience the supernatural joy that only he can give. Joy really is revealed throughout every page of Philippians. In the life of Paul himself, as he wrote this letter from prison, he awaited the verdict of this looming trial, which could result in a death sentence for him. Even him, in that moment, in that context, he could say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's joy. That is a heart of joy that only the Lord could give. For the Philippians themselves, the recipients of the letter, those whom, quote, the Lord had begun a good work in them and would complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus, they also could have joy for the exact same reason, because in Christ they had this whole new reality that they were citizens of heaven. And thus for us this morning, because all of this is from the Lord and we too are citizens of heaven, we can experience joy today. But remember for us all, as we conclude this letter, the overarching purpose of the book of Philippians was Paul's direct intent to thank this church for their financial support when he was in need. The material resources they sent to him time and time again, that was the motivation of the Holy Spirit for Paul to write this. As he did this great apostolic work uh, that Jesus had commissioned him to do, the church in Philippi provided for his material needs again and again and again. They gave. So we need to be very clear this morning. This inspired text, this ancient letter, reveals a principle that is seen throughout Scripture, and it is this. Our joy and our generosity are connected. Let me say it again. Our joy and our generosity are in some way connected to each other. We don't see one without the other. Jesus also said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We see this principle throughout. So again, this morning, the question is, do we believe this? Do we really, on a heart level, believe it? Seriously, do you believe that the joy that we all want so badly is in some way connected to the generosity that's in our hearts and giving. The teaching this morning is about a local church from years gone by and their relationship with a man who is working to spread the gospel. 
And in this church in Philippi, we don't know much about it. We don't know how many members they had. We don't even know if they had a formal name. We just know it was a local church. And what we would have known is that on the Lord's day, just like us today, they would have proclaimed the Lord's word. They would have prayed. They would have sung hymns and songs of praise. They would have baptized. They would have taken the Lord's supper. They would have cared for the poor. And like we will do today as well, they would take up a collection and the elders and the deacons from that local congregation would distribute those funds as the Lord led them, which obviously included part of Paul's ministry. So this sermon this morning is not so much directed at you individually. It's really not. It's about the whole body of a church. This is a sermon for TCPC this morning. However, the giving of the church is the result of the giving of individual members of a local church. So this morning, as we examine this joyful church, we recognize that the work begins inside of all of our hearts, inside all of our homes, inside all of our budgets even. So may God inspire us this morning as we look at this passage in our giving as we participate in God's work around the world. All right, so let's examine this joyful church this morning in two parts. First, notice that a joyful church gives relationally, and then secondly, a joyful church receives spiritually. So we give relationally, we receive spiritually. And my hope for us this morning is that God will allow us to be his joyful people in our homes, in our city, in our world. They will all be more like Christ, and we will enjoy. Okay, let's first consider that we give relationally. Look back at verse 14. This really is a great passage for a missions conference, but this morning, it's for all of us. These words really do reveal the heartbeat, if you will, of the entire letter. The situation for Paul, as we know, we've talked about this every week. Paul was in trouble, period. He needed help. He had been arrested. He had been arrested for preaching the good news of Christ. He had been arrested for being a missionary. So he sends this letter expressing his deep expression of gratitude to this faraway church because they had helped him in his distress. As he was under house arrest in Rome, the Roman policy was not to give material help, so he needed it. He was in trouble. It was as if the Philippian Mercy Fund sent supplies to Rome all the way for Paul's use. It's a beautiful picture. It's a model for churches everywhere in all occasions. But there's more to this story and why I think we as a church, we need to wrestle with what Paul experienced from them. And it really does reveal a mission strategy for us. We need to see this. Look at verses 15 and 16. It was not just here in Rome where the Philippian church helped Paul. It was much earlier than that. Paul mentioned this great statement. He said, quote, when the gospel started, what a statement. When was that? That was when Paul and the other apostles began to proclaim that Jesus rose from the dead. It was not preparing people for that. It was the reality. It had happened. Forgiveness of sins is found in one person and one person alone, the man who conquered death. This gospel began by saying that Jesus is alive, that life is found in him, true life is found by faith in him. 
But notice these other cities mentioned. Macedonia, Thessalonica. What do they have to do with this story for Philippi? How was Paul supported in those places? Do you see it? It was the same local congregation faithfully giving to him. This group of Gentiles who had been converted by Christ, who now are Christ followers, repeatedly gave to his work again and again and again and again. Where did they give to Paul's work? Wherever Paul went. When did they give to Paul's work? Whenever he needed it. Even when no other churches would do it, there were the Philippians. They were supporting him no matter what. How committed were they to Paul's calling? Paul says they were his partners in ministry. Do you see the heartbeat of this? They weren't just check writers. They had a relationship with those who were doing the work of Christ. It wasn't a strategic place sort of thing. Rather, it was a relationship, a partnership. They were committed to his calling for his entire ministry. You know, as I studied this and thought about it, and I thought about our life here at TCPC, I do want to brag a bit on Nate Jones and our missions committee. Uh, this past weekend, last weekend, for the Good of the Bluegrass Conference, we had one of our mission partners with us, Yulian Taras Telvatsky. I don't say their last name well, but Yulian Taras were in town. We have been supporting them as missionaries for years and years and years. Uh, they have a unique story. As they were in town last week, a lot of people heard from them and got to meet them and uh, reacquainted with them. We have known them for decades. It goes back to Crew's relationship with Metz Belarus back in the 90s. But because of political unrest in Belarus, Taras and Yulia and their family had to flee. They are now refugees in Poland, and their future is unsecure. Now they have launched a Russian-speaking church in Poland. And our church, as a mission partner, has gone with them. If we had simply said, no, we are only supporting people in Belarus, then what would happen to our friends as they have fled as refugees? Would we have just forgotten them, lost them, dropped them from our support? You need to know our missions committee absolutely has not forgotten them at all. No way. We are committed to them no matter what, as long as they are committed to the gospel because it's relational. It's a partnership. It's over time. Do you see the nature of a generous church, a generous family, a generous person? As we give, we give because we are committed relationally to the people, to the cause. Paul noticed here, he required here, the Philippians were his partners. A joyful church does not just give strategically, quote unquote. We give also relationally over time. So my prayer for us is that may we all, as individuals, as a church, may we give to the mercy needs of our community. May we give to the mission needs of our community. I hope all of us support a campus outreach staff or two or RUF or whatever campus ministry is in our life. And I pray it will not just be a check writing experience or an automatic transaction, but it will be relational, a partnership. I pray we get to know, to love, to care deeply those whom the Lord calls us to support. 
The Philippian church is our model. They gave, they gave, they gave. Wherever the Lord sent Paul, they were with him. So may we, in our individual giving, recognize the Lord's work is done over time, through the decades, with life's challenges, with his providence changing. May our missionaries and campus ministers, may they know that we are committed to them. That's the nature of a joyful church. It's relational. Now, consider the other side of the coin. Notice here that a joyful church also receives, but we receive spiritually. Not only does a joyful church give, but the people of God also, we experience something as we give. Look back at verses 17 and 18, and, and I freely admit I love this. Paul states that for the record, and he makes one thing very, very clear, he has all that he needs. All of his needs are covered. His financial needs, his material needs, his food, whatever he needs to be a missionary there, he's got it all. As a missionary and as a prisoner for Jesus, the Lord has provided every single thing that he needs. He is grateful. He is well supplied. He has all that he needed for him to do what God has called him to do. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This is beautiful. But there's something else on his heart. There's something else on his mind. And it's not about himself. It's about those who gave. He cared about something beyond his own needs. He cared about those who were his supporters. And it's crucial for us to see this. It is the blessing that the church is to receive as part of their component of the investment. Do you see it? It's the fruit that increases your credit. Your credit. What on earth is that? These are financial terms and financial concepts. What credit do churches, what credit do people have, and how can that be increased? This local congregation filled with people just like us, people who live by faith, people with jobs, with families, with responsibilities, with problems, all that comes in a life of faith, of life and death, those kind of people just like us, we have an account, and it can be increased. And this credit is in some way connected to our joy. And as our credit increases, our joy increases. Now, this is hugely important because if I say the wrong thing, th this could be really, really, really bad teaching of these passages and other verses similar to them, that in some way, if we think we can give more, that that isn't going to turn back on us, that the Lord will somehow miraculously give us more money. That, that, that's not what this passage is saying. Please see, our giving and our generosity is not shame-induced. It is not so that you will feel guilty and you in turn will give more money. That's not it. It's that our spiritual lives really are connected, though, to our generosity. There is a unique and special balance between these two. This credit that we have, here's what it is. It is simply the spiritual blessing of being part of God's kingdom coming from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, that sounds so simple, I need to say it again. The credit that we all have is the spiritual blessing of being part of God's kingdom coming 
from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the joy of experiencing God's grace, of caring about that which the Lord cares about. By seeing, by praying, by knowing, by loving, by caring, by giving, so that lost people hear the news of our Savior, so that broken people are redeemed, so that systems of injustice are broken, so that the world really does match the ethic of heaven, so that orphans and widows really are cared for, that missionaries' work on the field is supported, so that new churches can be planted, so that families can be restored, and the list goes on and on and on of gospel work. When gospel work becomes the theme of our heart, we will experience supernatural joy. Our credit is that we get to participate in the very reason Jesus came to this earth. And as that fact takes root in our heart, our joy in our lives now will be impacted. As we do, we will grow more like Christ and our joy will be experienced. The promise is given here. As the church gave its resources, verse 19, the pressure's off. God will take care of all your needs. Notice that. God will supply all of your needs according to his riches. There's no pressure here. Your needs will be provided as you give to the Lord. You don't have to worry about that. In his way, in his timing, he'll provide all that you need. Interestingly, you need to know the context. The Philippians here were not known for their wealth. They were known for their generosity. They gave repeatedly because God's grace in their own lives is now the, uh, the fact that they can care more about God's kingdom than anything else. So Paul reminded them, church, your credit has increased. Your spiritual lives are full. Your enjoyment is now great. It's as if Paul was saying, you are living in the design of this world. Your actions match your creator. Enjoy giving because we enjoy all that the Lord has done. Albert Einstein was famous for many things. 1921, he was given the Nobel Prize in physics. He is the creator of E equals MC squared. Does anybody really know what that means? I don't, but I know it's famous. Some would say he changed the world with his theory of relativity. I trust that that's true. Scholars say we look at the universe completely differently because of Einstein's work. Yet Einstein perhaps saved his most lofty language for something he said about money. I love this. This is the great physicist said this, quote, compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it, earns it. He who doesn't, pays it. He didn't say that about physics. He didn't say that about the universe. He said it about compound interest of money. And it's true. Ask any of our financial people. Even Tommy Ogden can figure this out. When money is invested over a long period of time at a good rate of return, it's amazing what happens. The eighth wonder of the world. That concept 
is the spiritual picture Paul is painting here for our lives. Just as everyone wants a large retirement account that grows and grows and grows, we're to long even more so for a full credit of a life of investing in God's work. Over time, with a great rate of return, giving to the work of Christ over long periods of time for gospel work, the cause of Jesus' kingdom, it will bear spiritual fruit in a church and in the heart of a giver. The spiritual blessing of participating in God's work will increase our joy. Do you believe that? As I thought about this, I don't have any names in mind, I promise. But I have never met a joy-filled follower of Jesus who doesn't enjoy giving. But I've met plenty of miserable people who are stingy. There's a connection between the two. Now, again, this morning, the application is not hard for me to explain, but only the Holy Spirit can do the work. Is the spiritual blessing of Jesus truly what we want? Is it? For the Philippians, it clearly was. They experienced a high yield of return by giving and giving and giving and giving over long periods of time. Not because they had to, but because they enjoyed the reality of the gospel. It's part of the pathway to joy in Christ. But please see this morning, to embrace God's love and grace in Christ, you need to know you already have an account. Your spiritual account is active and it is open. Jesus paid it for you. You did not have to apply. You didn't have to be pre-approved. You didn't have to have a good credit score. Jesus purchased it for us. You are his delight. He delights in us and invites us into this calling. He's responsible for it all. He wants us to invest in what he is doing because it's good for our souls. It's good for our lives. He wants you and me to experience his joy. Look at verse 18. This giving, it's acceptable and pleasing sacrifice to God. God is pleased with it. Will often prays an offertory prayer that says something like this. May our grip on this world be loosened. And what that means is so that we can embrace something better than just this world. The passage of Malachi that Rick read for us, I chose that passage because I want us to see the ongoing problem for God's people is that we have always preferred the things of this world more than the things of heaven. Even in the Old Testament, Malachi's day, it was the exact same problem. There's always been a competition in our hearts for the present world versus the heavenly world. And God has always graciously reminded us of that which is better. The joy that we all want so badly does not come in our comparison of having more, bigger, or better than anyone else. It comes from our hearts being aligned to the good news of Christ. I think we all know this, so I need to say it. This passage is needed. It's always needed because this is hard. This is a battle for our souls, for Christians in our day and in all days all over the world. You think about our situation this morning. We are Presbyterians in the suburbs of a prosperous area in a prosperous day and time. And we praise God for his blessings. Absolutely. 
But in our prosperity, I think it's true, that often makes it harder for us to be generous. You would think it would be the other way around, but in a broken world, that's the result. Therefore, we must be challenged again and again and again. Generosity to the work of Christ is part of our calling, and we will not experience joy without it. So this morning, we see a joyful church gives relationally. A joyful church receives spiritually. Why is this so? Is it not exactly the pattern of our Savior? As we consider the cross of our Savior this morning, and as we come before the table in just a few moments, we know this, that Jesus' joy was incomplete until he had us. And what would it take for Jesus to have us? It's that he would give. He was willing to give up his place in glory to come here and become one of us. He gave up his throne to take on flesh. He gave up his majesty, a life here on this earth without a place to even lay his head. He gave up his body as a sacrifice. He gave his blood to take our sins. Jesus gave, and he gave, and he gave. And as we walk with him today, we know that Jesus gives, and he gives, and he gives. We are a joyful people. We are a joyful church because why? Jesus paid it all. We are his people. Our joy is found in him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and come and feast with the, the Lord this morning around his table. I will begin and we'll transition to the Lord's Prayer. Lord, we thank you for the book of Philippians. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for all these promises that you have given to us throughout these days. Well, Father, you are generous. You are our Lord. We trust you. Oh God, we ask that you continually make us more and more and more like you, that we would love that which you love. And now we pray, oh God, as you have taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. 